a random encounter at a broadcasting facility, a shared interest and love of all things Marvel, Excelsior, a misinterpreted program title, and behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick, podcaster and comic book enthusiast, and Eddie Wilson, upstate New York radio announcer, still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter! What are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Hey, this is Daniel Warren Johnson, author of books such as Murder Falcon, Wonder Woman Dead Earth, The Ghost Fleet, and Beta Ray Bill. And you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode and introducing our special guest, we want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on them, our social medias. Um, it's not really we, but you go ahead. Oh, the royal we. The, the I collective. Like, I, was wearing, yes. I was wearing a crown oh. when I said that, Eddie. Oh, pardon me, King <laughs> Peter. Eddie, this is a democracy. A democracy. Da- anyway, go on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at... The Marvelists. Find us individually on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram, at Peter Melnick. On TikTok, God knows why. I really don't know why. I, 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 that site sucks. But I'm on there, at Peter Melnick, but better. Not but butter, like so many detractors and foes of... I don't even know where I'm going with this. Just that. at Peter Melnick, but better. Anyway... And there's only one social media platform to find an Eddie Wilson, and that is... Instagram, at Eddie9193. You can also find us on a wide variety of streaming platforms. TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, SoundCloud, Spotify, you name it. Have ear holes. We'll, we'll get into them. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe some pim particles. Get it? Because we're going into the topic at Marvel. <laughs> Topical? Uh, like a cream I need for my arms. Or get, salve. It's that time of the year, you know. But... We can also be found on iTunes. Rate, review, subscribe, and share. Five star if you're ever so inclined. And yeah, show you know, show us some love, Eddie. Support. Look at Eddie. You know, look look at the little fellow. Look at look at him. Look at him. He needs a hug. Give Eddie a hug. Give Eddie a big old huggy. Anyway, you can also support the show on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash The Marvelists, where you can get for as little as three dollars a month. You know, it's like the whole idea of I like what you guys are doing. Enjoy a cup of coffee on me, mm. not literally on the person. You know, back in the day, somebody said to my mom, the fries are on me at Wendy's, and she laughed for like 25 minutes because she goes, oh, the fries are on them, literally. Wow. The joke did not age very well. Time. But anyway. We need more than a huggy now. We need maybe huggy bear. $3, like I said, gets you the ability to have early access to episodes of this here fine program, including this one, 24 hours before the official main feed air date. That is a day. Exactly. Mm-hmm. How, how many minutes, Eddie? Uh, yes, all of them. <laughs> you can also, for $5 a month, get access to our Patreon show called The Fantastic Voyage, where we cover all 102 issues of Stanley and Jack Kirby's iconic Fantastic Four run, as well as annuals, as well as crossovers, what have you. We're going to talk about it. Also, like I said, support the show for as much as a colophillion dollars on our Patreon. Get that. Help us out. If you can spell it, you're halfway there. There's an F in there and a K. I know that. Hey, 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 hey. That's what horses eat. That's exactly (laughs) right. Well, it's kind of leading into what we're talking about, so why not? You are good with these segues. I like that. Nay. But I'm going to have to delay on that segue. 
Okay, fine. In the month of May. No, anyway, you just keep rhyming now. I do radio, so Segway is kind of like a standard requirement. Well, segway for Paul Blart, Mall Cop. No, not uh, that one. The yeah. original Segway. Oh, oh, I thought they were going to go with the sequel. Paul Blart, Mall Cop 2, Malls in Paradise or something? I don't know. <laughs> but you can also support the show at belowthecollar.com and go to belowthecollar.com. Easy for me to say. Slash. No, it isn't. The Marvelists. No, it isn't the Marvelists? What a unique URL. Anyway, get our Dad Joke Immune t-shirt because clearly if you've made it past this point, first off, God bless you, but also your Dad Joke Immune, evidently. But I can take it. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us on the other end of the tin can and string is a man who just made his debut with a series over at Marvel, but he is known for his work over at Image Comics, over at DC Comics, a plethora of of wonderful content. He's known for Wonder Woman Dead Earth over at the Distinguished Competition. He is known for Murder Falcon Extremity, among many others over at Image Comics. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us today, Daniel Warren Johnson. Daniel? Good evening. Hey, guys. All How right. Doing? I feel I like know. I have to have my radio voice on. You guys know what you're doing. <laughs> Time to wake up. Who? You have a radio voice? I love it already. <laughs> so... First off, I was talking to you about this off mic, but Daniel, I am so damn glad to see you over at the House of Ideas at Marvel. It is long overdue. Congratulations. Thank you very much. It's been a winding road, but I'm glad I'm here now. I'm glad to be doing Bay Ray Bill. It's a really fun. Connecting the dots. I mean, I guess we're going to start with your first foray into this what? field that we also know and love comics, so we want to start that, maybe? See, see, I thought we were going to go into a Joe Franklin thing where we talk about the most current project first and then go from there. But oh. you know what? I do like the idea of learning the past to get to the present. So let's do that. He said long and winding, so let's buckle up and connect the dots. So where did it start for you, Daniel? Well, I guess it would start at the Danforth Art Museum, which is in Framingham, Massachusetts. Uh, it was there where I took my first art six years old, and there was an Italian lady named Rosetta there, super cool lady, uh, very Italian, did not speak much English, but she was a great teacher, and uh, she pulled me, she pulled my parents aside after class, and she's like, you can't be putting this kid in with the regular kids, you got to get them into the uh, adult figure drawing class. So uh, when I was about 10 years old, I started doing figure drawing classes uh, with adults, and I did that all through high school. And she was tutoring me the whole way. Wouldn't be here without Rosetta. Thank you, Rosetta. Thank you to my parents for uh, signing me up for those classes at the Danforth Art Museum, a great place. And kind of one thing led to another. You know, I went to college and I was a teacher for a while. I uh, didn't like that so much. So then I just did my very best, try my hand at uh, doing illustration full time, just doing anything that would pay me. One thing leads to another, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do was just see if I could make a comic book and see if I could even make money doing that. So I started Space Mullet, the webcomic that I'm sure you guys have heard about. And I did that. I uploaded two pages a week for two, for two, at least two years consistently. Started getting me noticed by people like Dark Horse. And um, I, I did some work with Dark Horse and that led into working with Donnie Cates on the Ghost Fleet. It's a long time ago now, 2013, 2014. And uh, that kind of helped me get me in the door at a bunch of different places and uh, sort of working on the image. And, you know, after uh, kind of running myself ragged on my own ideas, my own creations for a while, I just wanted to try some uh, big two stuff. And thankfully, I was able to uh, pitch some stuff over at DC with Wonder Woman Dead Earth. That was really fun. And during that entire time, 
I was talking with Marvel about working on a Beta Ray Bill book, and one thing led to another. I was going to work on Beta Ray Bill uh, instead of Wonder Woman, but things got turned around schedule-wise and all that stuff, so I ended up doing Wonder Woman first. And I was like, you know, kind of tentatively emailing Marvel after Wonder Woman was coming to a close. I was just like, hey, what are we thinking? You know, I was thinking maybe they'd be have moved on. You know, and uh, Marvel, you know, is awesome, but uh, I don't. They they did not think that uh, Beta Ray Bill was going to sell very well. Uh, so I think you know, I'm not exactly an A-lister, so I I, I think they were worried that maybe a horse face book, uh, a horse face themed book that hasn't had his own title in a long time wasn't going to do very well. But thankfully, they gave me they gave it a shot and. Uh, doing pretty well now and we're really excited about it and uh, yeah that's kind of how we're here so yeah i was going to say did you pitch beta ray to marvel or how did the that character come up yeah i mean i was always knew that if i worked on a marvel book the number one choice would be beta ray bill so i figured you know well i know some editors and i know their emails so i'll just email them and just ask you know so i emailed uh, will moss just being like hey i think uh you know i'm a big fan of marvel and I think I could really kill a Beta Ray Bill book. I'm not sure if that's in the, in the works or in the cards at all, but I think I would do a really good job, and I think it would be sell really well, and I'm really confident in the product that I could give you if, if you give me Beta Ray Bill. And so we were going back and forth, and Will was kind of like, I'm not sure if Beta Ray Bill's going to sell, maybe, maybe not. He really wanted to do it, but he's trying to figure out the higher-ups. This is kind of before the King, King in Black stuff really took off at Marvel, you know, maybe a year and a half before. Um, so they didn't really have a huge spot. I think Jason Aaron was finishing his run on Thor. And as far as my knowledge, he was not using Beta Ray Bill a ton, but I could be wrong about that. Um, so that's why I, I kind of thought it would be my end, because I could just do whatever I wanted. You know, part of the universe. And uh, then I, I talked with Marvel a little bit more at C2E2, and uh, it just seemed like the better timing to do a, the Wonder Woman book. So I took a break from Marvel and just did the Wonder Woman book, and yeah, one thing led to another. And one of the things with Beta Ray Bill is he is one of those cult classic characters in the Marvel mythos, and oh yeah, he's very much like when you know rumor and innuendo going around on the cinematic front of things. He might eventually be making his big screen debut in the very near future. He even made a cameo. If it's it's a blink or you'll miss it kind of cameo, but he's in Thor Ragnarok, for example, as a statue, along with he Man is, Thing. He is. I saw it. I I totally nerded out when I saw that in the theater. I was so excited. And what about the character draws you to Beta Ray Bill? A few things. Um, I like his uh, his character arc. I like the idea of him being like a pretty normal person that was transformed into a super soldier. I think that's pretty cool. Um, I love the kind of alien-y sci-fi opera vibe that is kind of a little more sci-fi-ish than Thor, the Thor world is. So there's kind of a marriage of like, you know, because Thor is like in, like Asgard, it seems like it's kind of in space, sort of, but it's not really sci-fi, you know, it's almost like more like magical fantasy. So I like the introduction of a like straight sci-fi character into that world. And I also just really like the way he looks, you know, he just looks really cool, he's super fun to draw. And uh, he's like, you know, kind of the B-Thor, the B-level version of Thor, but he looks so different, you know, but he has those same wings on his head that, like, Thor has and a cape and, you know, the, the, the rounded-out hammer. Uh, he's just a fun-looking character that kind of 
hints at all the things of the story universe, but you know, you don't really get to experience it until you really read the pages. And so, also Walt Simonson, you know, he's one of my favorite creators of all time. He's fantastic, and uh, you know, the fact that I'm able to work on a character that he invented is kind of mind numbing. So, and not and not just that, but dude, you got to do an interview with Walt in the pages of Beta Ray Bill number one at the very end. And I saw yep. that, and like I, the biggest smile on my face because I love seeing how many people in the comics community are continually celebrating the wonderful career of Walt. You know, you have so much stuff that yeah. he's done throughout his career. He's coming back now on uh, the next few yep. weeks. I think actually this week, the, of as of this recording, he'll be returning to X Men with Weezy Simonson on. X-Men Legends. Yeah, number three. Three, I think, yes. And it's, wow. it's very cool to be able to see appreciation for him and, you know, all of his his massive body of work. You know, not, he's not just a talented artist, but an amazing writer as well, where you have, yes, everyone says it, the, you know, the iconic run on Thor, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention his excellent work on Fantastic Four. Yep. You have so totally. much great stuff in there. And, you know, even the the quote-unquote new Fantastic Four team, that's still heavily celebrated and remembered to this day where they've been referenced, you know, continually, that lineup in the Marvel books. Even, you know, Cartoonist Kayfabe fairly recently did a video about that quote-unquote trilogy of stories. And it's, again, it's wonderful to see the appreciation that the comics community has for Walt. Yeah, he's really an amazing talent. And you know, I'm of course I'm I'm very much drawn to creators that write and draw their own stories. I, I know there's a lot of them, but um, I feel like kind of Walt and I, or at least the way that I look at Walt's drawings, you know, I feel like we kind of have the same artistic sensibilities. And I love the way he puts lines on the page, which is something that I asked him about in, in the interview. You know, uh, it looks to me, at least, that the uh, that Walt was having at least some fun. You know, that he was enjoying himself when he put these lines down on the paper. Um, you know, his lines don't do, do not read, uh, how's, what am I trying to, they don't read like it was stressful to put them on the page. I, I love books like Akira and things like that, but man, you look at those lines, you're like, man, like I took all day on that thing. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, I like, I just like seeing, I feel a lot the same way about Simon Roy's work, you know, more of a modern artist, but you know. They're not so worried about making everything look perfect. They're just worried about telling a good story and making sure you enjoy it. Going back to the very beginning, though, Daniel, who or what types of characters were you drawing when you, you know, in your youth, getting to, and this is another thing, Framingham, Massachusetts, I immediately react to that as the place of the Super Mega Fest for several years. Is that a robot? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Great show. Not the robot part, but, you know. Um, I definitely remember Super Mega Fest, but I never went to a show until I was, until I had graduated college. Mm-hmm. My I, I was kind of sheltered growing up. You know, my parents are awesome, but they were very averse to any sort of like violence in comics or guns things like that. So uh, any kind of show was like had a ton of that stuff. So mm-hmm. it was kind of forced for me. It forced me to like go into the comic book store every once in a while and try and pick out stuff that I thought my parents would allow me to keep, and then anything else that was not that. I would stuff like under my mattress, you know. So it's not like porn or anything. It's just like a comic book with a bunch of punches in it. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Who then would you say were your first comics? And again, what were the first things you were starting to draw and so on? Yeah, I mean, I'd be 
I can't not mention um, Power Rangers. Uh, it was such a huge influence on me growing up. You know, it's like the first, one of the first action shows that I've seen, and it had the robots, it has the punching, it has all the, the cool stuff. That and um, the Transformers, I was watching Transformers reruns every day after school. Um, so those were huge, and um, a bunch of Spider-Man stuff. Uh, my parents were like totally okay with me buying Spider-Man comics. Mm-hmm. Seemed like pretty chill. So you know, I get some Spider-Man comics every time I go to the comic book store, which was very rare. Um, and that kind of gave way into as I like started getting into middle school and high school, started finding more uh, uh, manga. So there's this one random manga by uh, Tetsuro Ueyama called Metal Guardian Faust. It was like a one-off manga that really doesn't make any sense, and nobody really knows what it is, but it was in Barnes & Noble all over in the early 2000s. And, uh, you know, it's one of the only things of his that's been translated, and the art is incredible in it, and I was totally drawn to that. Um, Battle Chasers, would, it was absolutely huge for me. Um, you know, every, every, every section of my like, upbringing has different main you know, inf- influences and inspirations, but those are some off the top of my head. And you got, you mentioned the Power Rangers. I'd be remiss if I don't ask, but which were your who were your favorite characters in the Power Rangers, and which was your favorite version of the series? Oh, geez. So I mean, after I grew up, I, I mean, I fell out of it very hard. But um, was it the White Ranger? T- uh, Tommy. Had, I, Tommy. Yes, I was really into the White Ranger. Um. I think the White Ranger was probably my favorite, but and then um, there's like Super Megazord, like the the upgraded version of the Red Ranger. Um, I don't remember exactly. Uh, I should probably go back and check these things out, but uh, yeah, probably the White Ranger. And what about uh, series? Because I know for myself, like you, you can't go wrong with Mighty Morphin. I think Mighty Morphin is the thing I saw the most. Um, I mean, that's the first one, right? It's the original one? Yeah, when it came out in 93. Uh, okay. Yeah, I definitely uh, might need more than that. And it's funny because you say you're a fan of Tommy. Nine times out of ten, people will always go with Tommy, but in the Green Ranger version. So it's kind of cool to see someone that's going completely 180 and goes with him as the White Ranger. I never hear that. So, uh, I mean, I also really like the Green Ranger, but I love it when he turns into the White Ranger. He gets, like, a really cool sword, doesn't he? And the sword talked. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, dude, you're bringing me back now. That's the thing about, you know, it's always funny, too, because at one point Marvel had the Power Rangers license, and there were Power Rangers comics. Like, I believe it was, like, not long after Hamilton had the license, and there's just something about it. Like, Power Rangers is the one franchise that, you know, has, like, traded hands oh so many times over the years you know you had hamilton then you had marvel then they went over to image for the uh zeo series which yeah zeo zeo's but i digress (laughs) but you know i i would actually love to see a power rangers uh series from you specifically for the visual of like tommy in the white ranger outfit on top of the uh tiger zord oh man tiger zord like just imagine that (laughs) You're throwing out all these names at me, like, and I, I haven't heard them since the 90s, and it's uh, blowing, me, blowing I heard, my mind. I probably heard them a month ago, <laughs> realistically. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. And for me, uh, it's kind of like I was phasing out of anything related 
to that, you know, whether it was the TV show. So I'm playing catch up, and I'm not talking about the condiment. What about cats up? I'm talking about the shows like X Men animated series. I'm catching up with that, that iconic show yeah. of that generation. But in the early 90s, I was phasing out of my comic book collecting, which was up to about two dozen a month. But things were getting more pricey, crossing over into books. I wasn't into that, trying to finish a storyline. I'm like, okay, got to put this to rest and so on. In regards to, you know, it, it's funny because you, I, I can definitely tell you're close to, uh, you know, my age, uh, fellow millennial, and just seeing that element of what we were raised on, like all the different things, and it, it shows in your work. It definitely shows, especially with Murder Falcon, which mm. if you have not checked out Murder Falcon, definitely check that thing out. I was yeah. pulling it weekly, or not weekly, but, you know, every month when it came out, and phenomenal stuff. Just... It's how would you describe Murder Falcon? Because I go like I have like a little bit of a tenacious D vibe in there. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like if tenacious D meant like uh, if, if tenacious D was hair metal, that kind of that kind of vibe, like really big, bombastic, doesn't give a crap. Um, and uh, you know, kung fu, beer, uh, you know. Really cool guitars. You know, the, the guitar that Jake has is uh, basically a Jackson soloist from the 80s, which is one of my favorite guitars. And, um, you know, uh, the designer Murder Falcon was kind of thinking that he would be the, uh, if, if uh, Val Kilmer was a Falcon, like, what would he look like? Uh, <laughs> I love that descriptor. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I love bandanas, and I love uh, cargo pants, and Chuck Taylors, and uh, I love I love Birds of Prey, so I, I just put it all together, and that's what you got. And um, you know, the book is kind of hard to describe, but I would say it's a journey into the uh, like it's a journey into how how the it's a journey into exploring the human power of music. I'd say, and it's just it's a fun series, and it's again it's a reminder of what comics can do. Comics, you know, can do so much, and one of the biggest things is be a fun form of art and that's what murder falcon oh, yeah. is to the nth degree and i love it and wow. you know i cannot recommend murder falcon enough i actually believe uh over on comiXology i think the first issue was available for free to try out because i know image does that digitally with their books and yep. then if you like the taste of that buy the rest as it's opposed funny to because yeah. now now that a beta ray bill is coming out which is you know, getting a fair amount of eyes on it people are like man who's this daniel warren johnson guy and I'll see in the Twitter comments, like, people respond to people asking us, you got to read Murder Falcon next. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, yes. <laughs> and then you also, you know, like I said, you, you know, we had discussed, you worked over at the Distinguished Competition, DC Comics, for oh, yeah. the Wonder Woman Dead Earth, and that was a part of the Black Label line. And what was it like working under a label like that with a lot looser restrictions? You know... It was really fun. Um, it's funny because ever since the bat dick incident, um, <laughs> it's a lot more restrictive than you'd think. <laughs> um, one of the notes that I got before I even started on the book was, no sex, no nudity at all, not even a little, nothing, nothing, nothing. And it's funny because on the back of the book, you know, on the back of Wonder Woman, it says, for mature audiences. Um, and it's not exactly like nudity and sex is my brand, but... Um, you know, I was just like, I, I thought it was funny how, 
it, it is kind of billed, or it was kind of billed to me as a do whatever you want, but yeah, that's not really true. Uh, but that being said, it was still really fun to like, work within the sandbox of Wonder Woman and kind of pick and choose what I wanted to present. And one thing that I really loved about kind of bringing everything to the table is I was able to give Wonder Woman kind of a new aesthetic that I would thought would be uh, very fitting for the character and kind of an alternate take one where she is, uh, it's more about her character than uh, her body or her chest size. Um, and so that was something that I was kind of thinking about, and I really wanted to be able to connect with Wonder Woman as a character. And so I was kind of putting her in situations where I felt like I could feel for her and feel for a god, which honestly I never felt uh, for the character of Wonder Woman um, when reading it in other places. So I was trying to make a Wonder Woman book that I wanted to read. And with Wonder Woman Dead Earth, much like a lot of other titles over at DC with the Black Label, they're a bigger page size, I've noticed. You know, you have mm-hmm. Superman Year One by Frank Miller and uh, John Romita Jr. Uh, what else you got? You got uh, the Harley Quinn stories. You got, again, Batman Damned, which, by the way, I met, uh, what's his name, uh, Azarello, and I walk up to him and I said, Hey, man, I just wanted to say congratulations. And yes, I know everyone's going to be talking about that, but that book sold me because uh, you guys have Constantine in it. So, yeah. Because right. <laughs> that was New York Comic Con weekend. Like, that was, I think, a week or two removed from the whole controversy about it. And he's just like, I am tired of hearing about this. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine. But, you know, with those books, it's a, like I said, a larger page size. And I imagine, like, what were what were, what did you find to be the benefits of doing it in that format? Well, I found that it was kind of interesting. A lot of times with eleven by seventeen or the the, the regular comic book page format, it was also it, sometimes it can get difficult to fit everything in that I need to fit in the page. You know, um, my storytelling style, as I'm sure you've noticed, is you know I, I fit in a lot of panels, um, and so it was easier to fit in more panels into a Wonder Woman that are fits just because it was a wider and um, it allowed for some more uh, expression and more room to breathe when telling the story visually. Um, and it kind of felt a little bit like like kind of like a Prince Valiant vibe. You know, you remember that old comic? Yeah. Um, yeah, where it's just like you, you have like a lot of detail and a lot of things going on in panels that are just like straight up in the middle of the page. Um, I feel like one of my things that I kind of default to is I'll put in a lot of work on the first panel, which is big, on a regular comic book page, or the last panel, which is big, on a you know, regular comic book page. But with Wonder Woman Dead Earth, I really had to spread the love around. Um, and uh, it was really fun. It was a fun challenge. It was not as hard as I thought it was going to be. I was really worried about it when I started. Uh, but it's just kind of, you know, you just kind of roll with it, and um, you, get, you get a feel for it. But after that, I was off to the races. Um, that being said, it was nice. It was nice and comforting to come back to the regular page size when I started working on Beta Red Bill. And one thing in regards to you know your career in the very beginning, you with doing web comics. Myself, I'm you know an aspiring comic book writer, and one of the things you know we're told is like you know the usage of social media, the usage of all these different ways to tell a story to be able to bring it about and I'm definitely in agreement you know the idea of creating stories and throwing it up 
any way someone can read it to catch the attention. You know, like we had Mark Russell on uh, fairly recently and he remarked like, you know, part of his storytelling, you know, part of why he got noticed was because he was writing. And I swear to God, I'm not kidding. Count Chocula fan fiction and <laughs> in the style of Game of Thrones, which like French, uh, not French kiss, uh, chef's kiss. There we go. That's genius to do and just get yourself noticed and through any way possible. And I feel like doing web comics is a great way of getting your stuff discovered. Yeah. Um, I can't speak to it now because, it, you know, when I started Space Mullins, it was in 2012, and the, the landscape was a little different. There was a big web, web comic push at the time. Um, I don't know if that's still the case. It might, it might be. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I was just looking for a vessel to deliver uh, my story as cheaply and as easily as possible. I wanted to, I wanted to print my comics, but I just didn't have the money. And, uh, you know, it was going to be a big financial investment to get those things printed and put them together. So I just kind of treated it like when I first started doing illustration and trying to get paid for art, I went uh, breadth, not depth. So comics and space mode was one of the only, was one of the few things that I uh, kind of put my uh, foot into. I was also doing graphic design, poster illustration, storyboards, Anything that I could get paid for, and it just kind of ended up that, you know, with Facebook getting noticed, I, I kind of started sensing that a career could be there, where uh, comics, you know, don't pay great, but there's more work of uh, there's more work to go around than a lot of illustration work. So I kind of pushed myself in that direction. But Facebook definitely was a big part in helping me get there. And yeah, a lot of what you said, I think, would ring true. And you know, anybody that wants to aspire to get into this field, you know, it's it's hard to get out there if you're not known or you don't have the the backing, maybe of a company, a label. I think, though, in some respect, and only from me being a, a reader, that independents, ones that are just out there, not attached to the big two companies and so on, are starting to get more popular so there's you know there's that at least but i was worried you'd say something like really like all oh, those independent books i can't get behind them i'm like wow eddie really <laughs> no no not no, at i was all. worried for a second like no, no the collar no i was having a discussion with a co-worker in my field in radio how music over time is becoming more acceptable different types you know whether it's world music or just things that were never part of of mainstream that were super niche are getting more, I don't know, exposure and more popular or acceptable, palatable, whatever the right word is for it, too. So, in a sense, this media, the comic book media, is getting that way, too. But it's just taking a while. It's having its growing pains and not the TV show. Uh, continuing along. I really can't believe you made that joke, but I'm going to say I blame Bjork. Bjork? <laughs> I blame that Icelandic wow. nymph. <laughs> okay. And all those award shows she went to in those funky dresses or whatever, yeah. Now, also, Daniel, first off, in regards to Beta Ray Bill, also, you know, you had mentioned one thing, and it, it's such a interesting thing. You had mentioned that you had gone yourself to Marvel for pitching the idea, and it's very much – you can tell that, you know, you were on Marvel's radar, and they have that element of we'll come to you for an idea. You know, don't call us, we'll call you, but you've managed to build up a repertoire for yourself – a level of notoriety that you came to them and they're like, hell yeah, we'll take your idea. I love that. 
Yeah, uh, that's that's always kind of been the goal uh, to be able to have the kind of name brand where I walk into a door and, and say, "Hey, I'd like to do this," and I think I can really do it do it well. That I'll have the uh, history to back that up, um, and so I think with you know one thing I think that really helped was the success of Dead Earth too. Um, walking into Marvel and, and saying, you know, uh, hey, walking back to Marvel and saying, hey, are we still thinking about Vader and Bill? What do we think? Um, yeah, I'm really thankful. And, uh, I'm thankful that I ha- had that opportunity and that you know, they said yes. And, um, you know, when the pandemic first started, actually, because I had come back, you knowing Marvel a little bit in, uh, like, January, February of 2020, and, uh, you know, I was like, are we still in the Beta Ray Bill? I'm finishing Wonder Woman, let's do this. And they were like, 100%, we'd love to. And then Diamond shut down. Um, and, you know, Will emailed me, like, hey, we got to put this on the yellow light for a little while. And then once June came around, and uh, June, July, when Diamond started getting back on its feet, I emailed Will again, and I was like, hey, how are we feeling? And Will was like, I've been thinking about it, and I think if we tie it in the King and Black and name only, we can get it through. And so that's what we did. And that's why it's, it's like, quote, unquote, a King and Black spinoff. Um, because, it, you know, in order to get it through the powers that be over at Marvel, you know, you just kind of have to marry it with something that's doing very well. And uh, so that's what we did. And hopefully it shows that, you know, that uh, my editors were like, basically do uh, whatever you want in the first issue. Uh, Bill is going to be on Asgard, so just, get, you know, maybe have something King and Black related that he has to fight off before he does his own thing, and you can do whatever you want. They said, you can deal with it in one page, you can deal with it in 20 pages, it's totally up to you, do whatever you want, just has to be something related to King and Black. I was like, I can totally make that work. And uh, we were trying to come up with cool ideas for what could be nullified, and I was like, think same soon, 100%. <laughs> so, uh, you know, just basically picking something that I really wanted to draw and just make, just had Mike color them black. <laughs> well, two things in there with, well, with two characters, actually the same thing, but how long has it been? And you have done your research. We can, I can tell just by in talking, and you're so really enamored of the character of Beta Ray Bill, that, you know, you didn't, or you went be revisited, let's say, the Walter Simons and stuff on Beta Ray just to get refreshed and caught up on, on everything that this character's done and been through before. How long have we not seen the character until now with your series? Well, he has been showing up a bunch in Thor, uh, that when Donnie started writing Thor, um, which was kind of perfect. And actually, you know, I was wanting my main theme of my story. I had wanted to focus on Bill dealing with his looks and kind of a, a book about uh, self-acceptance and things like that. And then uh, when I read uh, Thor Breaking Bill's Hammer, I thought this is the perfect thing. He needs Stormbreaker to uh, turn back into his human form. So uh, I was kind of able to use that as a springboard. So he's been around in the beta, in the in uh, Donny Cates Thor run a little bit. And then I think. There was like a one shot last year where he's in Annihilation Scourge, like Beta Ray Bill Annihilation Scourge or something. I think he was and in it, Guardians as well. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, because he shows up for in a few panels in um in uh the reading of Thanos' will, I think. Yep, 
Yep. Which and is such Tradmore, a weird thing to say. <laughs> yes. He has a few panels in Tradmore's Silver Surfer Black, where he's part of the Guardians of the Galaxy there. Um, and then uh, before that, this was like t- at least 10 years ago, it was called Beta Ray Bill God Hunter, something like that, maybe. No. Um, and I did check that out a little bit, but I didn't want to get, I didn't want to be unduly influenced by anything another writer had made. So I decided to uh, only skim it because I didn't want to get any uh, ideas by accident. I had a pretty good idea of what I wanted to do, and so I just made sure everything was cool with the tutorial, and I took it off, took off from there. I would love to, because you know, you both got your start early on in comics together. I would love to see you collaborate with uh, Donnie again because Donnie is really good at you know partnering up with people and creating the best thing. You know, like. This is this was my uh, hot take for a long time, but I was not a Trad Moore fan for a very long time. Oh, okay. And, and then Silver Surfer Black came along, and I'm like, holy shit, this is my kind of book. It's like there's just something about that, you know, the what Donnie can bring out in an artist as well, you know? Yep. It's, it's pretty amazing, and uh, it was really fun working with him on the Ghost Fleet. That would be so fun to do another project with Donnie someday. <laughs> I want to see Thor. I think that'd be a really fun uh, series to see you, uh, you know, maybe bring you in on, like, a future arc. Why not? Yeah. Yeah, that'd be cool. Hey, Marvel, do it. C.B. Sobolski, do it. I'll get on this. I'm, I'm going to get on the C.B. and go honk, honk. Wait. <laughs> it doesn't even make sense. Well, to you, it does. No, it doesn't. Well, <laughs> I'm going along with you here. Jeez. Um, I think, Daniel, that it's great now, and, and it's a great feeling with this five-issue series that just started, Beta Ray Bill. And being um, on the back, I'm seeing Stormbreakers, the next generation of elite artists, and you're in the bullpen. Well, that's awesome. I'm so glad you feel that way. I, I feel like I am standing on the shoulders of giants, but uh, I, I'm really glad to be doing what I'm doing over there. Once again, it is absolutely long overdue to see you finally in the House of Ideas because... The ideas you have are out there, and that is the best kind of idea, you know? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. So, Daniel, before we go, how can people get a hold of you on social media? Yeah, if you just Google Daniel Warren Johnson, you'll find all my Twitters, Instagrams, and websites. Uh, it's Daniel Warren Art is my handle, but I also have a YouTube where I kind of draw uh, a bunch of stuff and kind of give art tips and things like that. But if you just Google me, you'll find me. Very cool. Daniel, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for the great questions. For The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Daniel Warren Johnson. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior! Obsessed with Marvel, the Daniel Warren Johnson edition. Thank you. We go straight to question number 1,601, and it's a worded one, so pay attention. It's a book, Eddie. Story time. If the Avengers, Fantastic Four, and the X-Men are all superhero teams, then the Defenders were originally described as a non-team. Conceived by writer Roy Thomas, the original Defenders were Doctor Strange, the Hulk, and the Submariner. Three loners who banded together in emergencies to battle menaces to their world. There was no formal organization, nor were there regular meetings. The Hulk and Namor resisted taking orders. The Defenders first appeared in Marvel Feature No. 1 in 1971 and graduated to their own The Defenders comic in 1972. The Silver Surfer also sometimes worked with the team, 
as did other heroes for brief stints. In time, the Defenders gained members who did not have their own series, notably Nighthawk, the former Squadron Sinister villain turned millionaire superhero. There was also Brunhilde the Valkyrie, an Asgardian goddess whose spirit inhabited the body of a mortal woman before regaining her own, and later Hellcat, the superhero identity of Patsy Walker. Are they going to talk about who does the dishes at the place next? It's, it's the bio of the group. Here's the question. <laughs> Which villain was in the first Defender story in Marvel feature number one? Oh, jeez. Was it? <laughs> well, yeah. My sentiments exactly. At least you don't have to fabricate one and come out of nowhere, but Dormammu, Dormammu, Yandroth, Nebulon, and the Squadron Sinister... Or the nameless one? I think it's Dormammu. I'm going to go with Dormammu. Yeah, if, if, I think I am too. I'm trying to remember the cover. Because Strange is in it and, too. And yes. That whole long opening was like, you know, I felt like it was a lead up to my have you ever been in a submarine question. It's, Which, by the way, Daniel, have you ever been in a submarine? I've been on a submarine that's like been docked. That like counts. an old German U boat. That way counts. Yeah, that's, that absolutely counts. Than anybody I think you've even asked. So, letter A, let's try it. Dormammu! No. <laughs> no, we've come to bargain, and it's Yandroth. to get a correct answer. The book, the book says Yandroth. So there oh, okay. we are, 0 for 1. Not an uncommon start to this bunch of talkers right now. We've been jobbing a lot lately on these, I've noticed. So there, okay. Here, there, and everywhere. Question number 1021. How did the Red Skull survive dying of old age in Captain America... Number Cle- 300. Clean living. Ponce de Leon, the oh, fountain of youth. Man. I mean, sorry? A glass of wine every night. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I've always... Never... All right, the choices here are the Cosmic Cube restored him to life, the Super Soldier Serum restored his health, Arnim Zola transferred his mind into a clone of Captain America. It's that one. It's that one. Or he switched bodies with one of his underlings. It's choice C because I was reading the Brubaker run recently because of the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So, yes, it's that one. But this is... I am shamelessly hitching my cart to, to, May as to well. that opinion. Yeah, so let's go um, with letter C. From issue number 300 of Captain America, Red Skull survives. It was the face cream that smoothed his skin. Uh, letter C. <laughs> Sorry. And it's... Correct. Yeah, because in hot the be- dog. Yeah, in the begin hot dog, we have a wiener. In the beginning, uh, wow. they, they they uh, the Red Skull gets killed off, and the whole thing is Captain America um is one of the suspects at first. So they have to like do a DNA test and all that good stuff. Oh, so that issue was fairly fresh in my mind because you know that's good. Dang. All right, let's go to question number thirty nine. Where did Reed Richards intend to go? On the space flight that gave the Fantastic Four their superpowers. Easy for you to say. Where were they intending to go? Uranus. Up up and away, (laughs) my beautiful... Okay. Uh, To the moon, Alice. Bang, zoom. To the stars, to Mars, or to the sun? Well, going to the sun would be stupid. Yeah, so, I think I think I'm going to go with moon, but I don't know for sure. I think it was the stars in general. Well, no, I would go with the should, moon too. But we it was, should really, as the Fantastic Voyage co-host, we should really know this. Well, the thing is, you know, the whole idea of they were trying to beat the Reds. Yeah, that getting, was literally getting, the point. Getting into space. Yes. Yeah, space. And not knowing what the cosmic rays were going to do, but we didn't know 
clearly perhaps their destination. I'm guessing the stars in general. That's what I was thinking, but Moon makes sense. You know? If I'm a storyteller, if I'm a storyteller, just the visual aesthetic of being able to point to a ball in the air and say, we're going to go there, I'm going with Moon. You're going with Moon? Yeah. You're going to say Moon? I'm going to go with Moon. I think, you know, they wanted to go up, they wanted to be in space, to beat the the, the Reds, the Ruskies, whatever, and they didn't have a destination. They wanted to be up, oh, Cosmic Rays hit us, we're going back. Where we're you going, know? there are no roads, Marty. We can't continue, <laughs> we have to turn back. We hit the Rays, they hit us, they went through us, we didn't feel a thing. It's it's hard but to decide. It is. But, all right, you're saying Moon, you're saying Moon, I'm saying Stars, so I'm going to hit B because I have the button, and it is... B, the stars. You said oh. that at first, Peter. I did, but yeah, it's... Yeah, it, you redacted, retracted, you just wussed I out. I was, I was a, a negative influence. Thanks <laughs> to me on this one. I can have a little merit for my cosplaying as Reed Richards, at least this time. My favorite thing about Eddie's uh, Reed... Uh, I was going to say Reed Wilson, but uh, Reed <laughs> oh, Richards geez. cosplay is the fact I told him once, buy a pool noodle, put it in a sleeve, and you pretend you have a long arm and put a glove on the end of it. And it works so damn well. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It really does. All right. I'm sorry, kids. We have one more long read before we get to. Oh, I meant to do that. Question. Question number 1,357. Hang on. In my lo- younger, more vulnerable years, my father gave to me. So Sorry, that was the great Gatsby. The Marvel 2099 line of comics also introduced an AD 2099 version of the X-Men set on an alternate future Earth. Created by writer John Francis Moore and writer Ron Lim. X-Men 2099 was founded by Zian Chi Zen, a former mutant criminal. Sorry if I got that wrong. Even in AD 2099, mutants were still an oppressed group. Following the example of Charles Xavier, Zian intended to help bring about peaceful coexistence between mutants and other humans. Among the other members of X-Men 2099 were the winged Bloodhawk, Cerebra, Crystalline, La Lunatica, and Mean Streak, and Skullfire. Don't forget Tito. Beam Streak is such a great name. Okay, we're halfway there. Whoa! The 2099 line also introduced another mutant team in comic book, X Nation 2099, created by writer Tom Payer and artist Humberto <laughs> Ramos. Humberto Ramos. Its premise was that Cerebra gathered a group of young mutants together, one of whom might prove to be a prophesized leader for mutant kind. Among the members were Clarion, December, Metal Smith, Nostromo, Twilight, Uproar, Willow, and Wolf, as in W-U-L-F-F. Okay, so what is the alias of X-Men 2099's leader, Xian Chizan? The alias of X-Men 2099's leader. Is it the Fool Killer, Controller X, Desert Ghost, or Brimstone Love? Holy crap, guys. Yeah, exactly. Brimstone love. Uh, the full killer <laughs> this controller. Is some, this X- is some back alley stuff. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Desert Ghost and Brimstone Love. Well, it's 90s stuff, I guess, but it's it's just like, yeah, the 2099 line. Oh, and among the countless number of comic books I have to get to and read and try to remember. Uh, so, say, the, say the answers again. The full killer, controller X, Desert Ghost, or Brimstone Love. Brimstone I think I'm going to go with Controller X because it sounds appropriate. I was kind of thinking. I said I don't. I really don't think Full Killer would be right here. Peter on the wheel. Brimstone Love. Sorry, that was Radar Love, but you know Brimstone. Wow. Okay. Hey, it had I the guess same it was, number of syllables. Yeah, I guess so. 
No shoehorning so those lyrics here. We're going with, well, two of us are saying Controller X. I don't know about you. Brimstone love. All I right, just want to say that. Let's you, just you go, go with, with whatever you want to go B. with. B. And no, the answer is Desert Ghost. Not Brimstone love. That was going to be my second choice. <laughs> <laughs> and we get that a lot. Okay. 